0: So, so just to quickly recap, uh, we have been studying this book called Shar Gamul by Ramban. Ramban is Nachmanides, lived uh, in Spain, so he was kicked out of Spain. Actually, I always think about it, I'll just share a quick, quick little anecdote about him because I'm always blown away. Nachmanides but... and Rambam is the same thing. No, no. So there's Rambam, Maimonides, and there is Ramban with oh. an N at the end or a nun at the end, Nachmanides. Oh. Rambam lived mostly in Egypt. Nachmanides lived mostly in Spain. Okay, so uh, just a very quick little uh, historical piece because it just ties into this Sunday's Yom Yushalayim. And so I always think about this, uh, the Ramban. He was 72 um, and, uh, you know, think about the life expectancy, certainly in that day and age. He's living in, you know, 1300s and he was forced to have a public disputation with a, an apostate Jew, someone who became Christian. His name was Pablo Cristiani. And he didn't want to because you, you cannot win If you're living in a Christian world, you cannot win because certain things you cannot say. And he was promised by the, the king, the king who happened to have a good relationship with him. You could speak your mind. Don't worry. Say whatever you want. I'll protect you. So the Ramban actually did have this public debate about, uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and and defending Judaism against the the arguments uh, that this uh, Christian had. And uh, he actually wrote it up. There's a book. I think they translated it. The Disputation. Someone made a movie, actually, about it. Uh, But you could read it, his his dialogue about his defense of of Judaism. And when the debate was over, which, according to, you know, you read Ramban's uh, listing of this debate... He, he did a pretty good job defending Judaism. Uh, the problem was that he spoke very candidly about Judaism and in the context spoke uh, derogatorily about Christianity in the process. Now, he was promised by the king that the king would protect him, but uh, the king came back to him. Apparently, uh, the king, despite how powerful he was, we know that back in you know, the medieval world, there was always a big power struggle between the king and the church. And so ultimately, the king told Ramban, Ramban Nachmanides, you have to leave the country. He had to leave the country. He was the leader of the Jewish people. He was the established leader living in Spain his entire life, and so at the age of seventy two, he picked up by himself. He his family stayed behind in Spain, he picked up by himself, and he traveled to Israel. Okay, and when he's in Israel, he writes a letter. Uh, to his son, who stayed behind, and he writes about the desolation that he sees. Wherever he goes in Israel, he says it's complete, everything is completely broken, everything is ruined, ruined, you know, the Crusades were not that too much earlier, um, and it's, everything's desolate, and he writes, he has a powerful line there, he says, the holier the place, he says, you know, Teveriai is broken and destroyed, he comes to Yerushalayim, and that seems where he's writing the letter, Jerusalem, and he says, the more holy the place, the more desolation. He says, Jerusalem, the holiest of cities, is the most desolate of all. Right? He sees Yerushalayim as, as completely desolate, and that's the letter he writes. Now, he settles there, and uh, once he settles there, people follow him. He's a charismatic leader. He's like the most important person in that time. And so eventually, a community starts to build around him, and this is really him coming there is actually a bit of a turning point in terms of the yeshuv of people living in Israel. It doesn't become tremendous, but a good amount of people start following him. There is, if you could visit Yerushalayim now, you could go to what's called the Ramban Shul. It's rebuilt. It's not the original Ramban Shul, but he, when he came there, he writes about not even having a minion of men and not even 10 men there. But once he comes there, people start flocking to him and he, and he ends up living there. Now, um, in the context of that, in the, in the tochecha, in the rebuke and the admonition that, that we read, there's two of them. One we're going to read this week, there's another one we're going to read in Shul weeks later in, in, in the summer. Uh, there's, a, there's a statement there that describes the desolation of Yushalayim. It describes the desolation of Yerushalayim, how, how desolate it is, how broken it is. And Ram, the Ramban comments in his commentary in the Chumash, which he writes in Yushalayim, he says, You know, you could see it as a curse. You know, it's it, it, it seems, the face value, it's a curse. You know, God's going to punish us and make Yerushalayim desolate. He says, it's not a curse. You know what it is? It's basically God holding out and the land holding out until the real people who live there come back. And he sees it as a promise. He says, while the Jews are not living in Israel, it's going to be desolate. But as soon as the Jews come back, it won't be so. The desolation is not a curse. Desolation is actually a promise. It's a it's a guarantee that as long as the Jew, other people come and they can try to cultivate the land, they will be unsuccessful. When we come back, it's our land. All of a sudden, the land wakes up. It says, "Ah, my my true lover is here. My my the people who live here are here, and the land's going to wake up and it's going to flourish." And that's what he's able to write to Yisrael. He's able to see it in a, a despite his his his, his uh, you know being so broken over how, how how desolate the land was, he was able to see something positive in that. Now he, when he lived there. He started to see a tiny bit of a turnover, but you know, you think we're about to celebrate Yerushalayim. It's uh, years and years since uh, you know became under Jewish hands. I can just imagine the Ramban living in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem today, and like what message he would write. You know, how he would write back home and say, "Yeah, you know, it, it was desolate for all these years, and now we come back, and you know, it's 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 I, I you know." Every, every time I come back to Yushalayim, it's just like, it seems like they built another world. I mean, there's some, you know, some of it's illegal, you know, all the building. But, like, you know, I'm not talking about, like, the political, I'm saying, like, you know, uh, the, the, the Mamilla Mall. When's the last time you're Like, all of a sudden, there's, like, this ginormous, like, it's unreal. It's unreal what goes on there. It's just It's amazing to think. I always just try to think of, like, the Ramban and how broken he was and still able to see it optimistically. We don't need that same imagination. We don't need that same creativity to be able to see how... We're connected to the Lent. Anyway, this is a real tangent, not even, a ta- not even fair to call it a tangent, but we're talking about the Ramban. I can't not go into your English line with, without sharing that, um, and I apologize if, if I end up sharing that again sometime over the weekend, but, but it just always, always strikes me that that, that that picture of the Ramban, his, his hope, his, his, his imagination, his positive his optimism, and something that we have the privilege. We don't need to have that same hope and optimism. We just open our eyes. It's our reality. We don't need to be so creative. Okay, that said, we're talking about the Ramban. We're talking about a little bit more or less of a positive topic. Topic, and that is the sto- the end of life. Um, today it's going to be a little bit more nitty gritty. Um, we'll learn less, it'll be more review than we'll, we'll learn something new, but it's not going to be uh, as much new as we've been learning until now. If you recall very briefly, we've said there are three worlds. There is Olam Hazet, there's this world, the world we live in, the world you and I are in. There is a place called Olam Haneshamot, or Olam Haneshamos, the world of the souls. You know, people loosely call that heaven, Garden of Eden. You know, but, but what is Olam Hanashamos? When we die, and we should all live and be well, but at that time, we will be going to one of two places. One is the Garden of Eden, which he will elaborate and describe for us soon. We'll get there. Or alternatively, we go to Gehenim, otherwise translated as, translated as Purgatory or Hell. Now, we spoke about the fact that most people, unless a person is really evil, most people spend some time in Gehenna because they need to rectify, they need to cleanse themselves from some sins, and then eventually they go into the Garden of Eden. If a person, you know, is, is really bad or they've completely fallen short in, in some mitzvot, they may spend more time in Gehenna, and there are levels to Gehenna, okay? Um, and then, after all this, there is what we call Olam Haba. There is a world to come. The world to come is going to be broken up into the Messianic era and something beyond the Messianic era, which is even greater, but we'll, we'll get into all those details soon. Today, we're going to focus a little bit more on the judgment that happens after a person passes away, and as we'll see, the year before a person passes away. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. A little bit uh, harder to follow, but we'll, we'll try our best. We are, uh, I should number it. Okay, so, so the front page for me is, begins with, and if you will ask, in the English, and in the Hebrew, ve'im tish'al. Okay, so the, the, par- the English paragraph begins with, and if you will ask, and in the Hebrew, ve'im tish'al. Okay, so let's begin. Ve'im tish'al. And if you will ask. Ve'elu shikaru osan chachamim zechronum levracha. Those that the sages described as the benonim, those in the middle. L'fi shavonoseihem uzchuyosehim shkulim. Right? They, they are the ones who have their sins and their merits truly in the middle. Now, it's hard to imagine, but you could have that. You could have it where it's truly a tie. It's truly in the middle, where a person is what we call beinoni. They're in the middle. They're not there. They're not here. It's really like a, some equal level of merits and sins. Now, if you recall last week when we studied the brisa, the this uh, you know ancient teaching said what happens when you have a beinoni, someone who's in the middle. So what did it say? The Amru Bahan will quote it. The sages said about them. The rav mata klape chesed. That God goes ahead, God who is abundant in kindness, and tilts the scale towards kindness. That's what it says. Now, before we see his question, let's just ask some obvious questions. We believe that there is justice. If there is justice, you know, is it fair if you were to walk in to a court and they were to have some scale, imagine that, and, and it's equal, and the judge says, well, I'm in a good mood today, and tips, it, tips the scale, you know, in, one, in, in the positive direction. What would you say about that judge? He's biased, right? I mean, we'd say, thank you, you know, it'd be great, but, but is that justice? Because the, the, the judge happens to be a kind judge, so he or she goes ahead and tips the scale. It's very nice. I'd appreciate it. But there's, there's a lack of justice. It's actually a perversion of justice. You know, it's, it's nice on the receiving end, but, but we can't call that justice, right? So, so he's at, he, that's, the, that's what's bothering him over here. The Bryce of the teaching we saw last week said that those in the middle, they come to heaven. That's what it sounds like. It says those in the middle, God sees there, them in the middle and tilts the scales in their favor. So it's incredibly compassionate, but it's also seemingly lacking in justice. And so he's going to try to explain what, what does that statement mean that God? tilts it for kindness, how does that make sense and what actually takes place? So, so now he's going to elaborate on the question. He says, o sham. Do they actually go down? Those people are in the middle. Do they go down to Gehenim to hell, or do they not? In Tomar, and if you will say, And if you say they do go down, Maha lahem hazos, vrab chaser, mate klapi chaser. If they do go to hell, then what did the Gemara mean? What did the teaching mean when it said that God tilts it towards kindness? What did it actually accomplish? And if you want to say they don't go down to hell, what happens happens to all the sins that they performed? Again, this is the question of the perversion of justice. So you want to say the person doesn't go to hell and God just says, you know what? Eh, I'm just going to tilt the scale in their favor well, then there's a lack of justice. I don't feel like we're appreciating this question. You know, it's very nice to get a freebie, but a freebie isn't fair, right? If, if we believe that God is just, then there has to be a system. We can't say that God just like, you know what, eh, whatever, he had a bad day. Okay, may, maybe he's, maybe it's going to impact, but, but if we believe that sins actually impact, let's go back to a, a, a principle that we said before, then I'll come to your question in a second. We, we suggested that when we think about the impact of sin, there isn't this simplistic scorecard where God is saying, okay, check, you know, minus, check, minus, or mitzvah notes, avera notes, mitzvah note, avera No, what it means, when we sin, it actually impacts us. We change, it changes our being. When we do a mitzvah, it changes our being. So, so how could you say when you come to heaven and, and God says, well, you know, it's true, you did a lot of sins, but since you're in the middle, I'm just going to ignore those sins. How does God ignore it? Does he just erase all, just magically erase all of the the, the, the the detriment, all the dirt that exists, does God just say, well, it doesn't matter. It, but, but who we are has been impacted. We've been tarnished. It doesn't just disappear, or, or does it, right? But if it just disappears, where's the justice in it? Yes, I'm sorry. But isn't it that God knows all and that he might be just looking at the whole picture and not just the one thing, that, so that he says, well, he's done more good than evil. He might be here for evil, but... True, true. So it, it is, you know, the, the, here, here's where it gets so tricky. You know, on the one hand, there is, the, there, there is what we call uh, nekudas habichira, okay? Which means the, the point of free will. There is an essay, a very famous essay written by uh, one of the great thinkers, of, Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, century, a man by the name of Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, okay? He gives an example of a, of a field of war. I'll give an example, since we're in Baltimore, of a football field, Football fields, okay, I know everyone here is big Ravens fans, maybe? No? No, just kidding. Okay, fine, doesn't matter. Let's just pretend. We all know it's the basic principle. In football, the goal is to get the ball from point one. Even me, Canadian, knows this, okay? The, from point A, from one side of the field, to the other side of the field, to the end zone. That's the goal, right? Now, you know, when, when you're playing football, you have your defense, you know, and, and your offense all lined up at the line of scrimmage, where the ball is, right? You don't worry about what's, you know, 20 yards behind you because the ball's not there, right? So the ball is constantly moving, and wherever the ball is, that's where the action is. That's where you really have to worry. That's where the fight is, right? The, the, the 30 yards behind you, there's no ball there, so you don't have to worry. You've, you've already accomplished that, right? So Rivellio Dester, uses that as an analogy and says, you know, in our lives, let's, let's look around this room, let's, you know, each of us, based on a billion factors, you know, there are certain things which are already behind us and certain things which are so far behind us, I'm not even thinking about that yet. Meaning, in a game of football, typically, you know, the, the, you, you typically have short passes. 20 yards, 30 yards. You know, rarely, rarely do you have that pass where the quarterback takes the ball and he throws it the entire length of the field? We call it Hail Mary. Excuse me. Uh, just kidding. What's it called? Uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, but, but we have the, right, where you throw the ball all the way across the field. That's not normal, right? That, that is atypical. That's why it's so exciting because it's so abnormal. Typically, you're throwing a few yards, 10 yards, 20 yards. That's the way to win the game. You keep on throwing it 10 yards. You eventually get to the other side. That's the game of life. The game of life is that. So, so what does that mean practically? It means I, I'll use my, you know, let, let's go around this room. You know, um, we're all right now doing a mitzvah. We're all right now doing a mitzvah. We're studying Torah. Okay, it's a big mitzvah. One of the biggest mitzvahs. Talmud, Torah, Kineg, Tuba. But the impact of the studying of Torah on each of us is radically different. Is radically different, okay? Meaning, because each of us, you know, for, for some of us, we may have grown up that the study of Torah is essential and we must learn Torah every day, right? And if that's been... In our head, in our head, in our head, day in and day out. And we've done it day in and day out and day in and day out. That means we're still getting a reward every time we study Torah. But the question, but we're not really struggling with, should I study Torah, should I not? Because we're so accustomed to it. For some people, you know, studying Torah is, it's a nice, it's a very good thing. Okay? So for them, maybe there, there is a different level of struggle for that person, right? Maybe for them studying Torah every day is a battle of sorts, right? For some people, studying Torah is such a crazy thing. I've never, uh, studying Torah, what? And for them to come is such a struggle, right? And for them, it's right there. It's the most like intense, the the strongest defense against you. And you are fighting against that in in the most intense way, right? Each person's doing this. We're all doing the same mitzvah. But the impact depends on where Torah is in our field. Is it something that's behind us? Look, for me, let's, 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 let's call a spade a spade. If I didn't show up over here, I'd have, I don't know, I, you know, 15 people would be quite upset at me, right? How much free will, how much did I exercise free will to come here? Very little, very little. I grew up, thank God, my parents inculcated in me. Like you have to study, I went to schools, you have to study Torah every day. It was a given, it was a given. So of course I get reward, it impacts me when my study Torah, but the impact for me is different than a person who might be here, who for them, this is a big deal for them to come here. It was a big choice. For them, they just gained, like, for them, this is the line of scrimmage. And by coming here, they just walked up. They just pushed forward 25 yards. Unbelievable. For me, I don't think I moved the ball. I don't think it moved the ball. Maybe it did a quarter of an inch. They moved the chains, tiny bits, but not, nothing real, right? Not, of course, it still is valuable. But each of us, I'm, I'm, where am I? I'm going to come back to your question. But the point is that each of us are judged. The impact of the soul, it's like a muscle, right? If you've been doing 10 push-ups, okay, let's use a simpler analogy because football, apparently, we're not a bunch of football fans here. If you've been doing 10 push-ups your whole life, it's nice. It'll maintain those things. But if you do 10 push-ups, you move on to 11 and then you move on to 12, right? So God sees, it's not like God's judging us based on our context. It's natural it's a muscle. Our spirituality is a muscle. When we do things that are hard for us, we get, it, it, it's more reward. When we sin and it's, and we shouldn't have, it's like, what? What's wrong? Like, this just such an easy thing for you. Why do you fail in this area? Then, th- then, then you have a much bigger impact. It hurts you more, so to speak. And when we sin in a way that we, it, it was indeed a big struggle, the impact is going to be less because we had that internal battle. So to your point, to your question, yes, God looks at the big picture, but there's always an equation. Every action has a reaction. Even me, who's here, who if I didn't come here, someone here would probably knock on my door and say, "What's wrong with you, Rabbi? Get out of your house!" No one would do that, of course. But but uh, you know, I I, I moved. There's a tiny bit of movement in me being here. Every action has a reaction. And yes, the context to your point, Ellen, the question of doesn't God look at the big picture is taken into account. But it can never be the actions cannot be ignored, whether it's a sin or a good deed. Every action has to have a reaction on our soul. So to say, again, going back to our question, does God just tilt the scale you're suggesting, Ellen, that maybe he's doing that because he realizes it's very hard for us. That impacts the judgment, but it cannot, but at the end of the day, if we sinned, it cannot be ignored. And that's the question he's grappling with. It seems like God is ignoring some of the deeds we do. Is God just tipping the scales for us? That seems very kind, which is one of God's attributes, Mm -hmm. but how does that get balanced with justice. That's the question on the table, okay? So, let's, let's see what he, what he answers. So, he says, um, <laughs> The answer uh, to this question is the one who asks it. He, say, he answers it with another uh, question, okay? You think it's a new thing that Jews ask questions to questions? It goes back, okay? So, he says, to your question, I'm going to add a question, and through that question, we'll answer it. What's the question? Uh, uh, Russia, 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 a Russia, who is characterized as someone who is a completely evil, <laughs> who is judged, as we saw again last week, there are people who are judged in Gehenim, not just for 11 months, but stay there for generations. Who are those people? <laughs> those are people who uh, rejected, they deny the resurrection of the dead, one of our principal uh, ideas of faith, <laughs> or placed undue dread on the congregation, and at the same time, this person also performed many mitzvos. right? You could have someone, I used to have someone who used to come to some of my classes who said, Rabbi, I am an avowed heretic, but I want to learn Torah. Cool. He sat here, um, and that's what he did, okay? Um, he didn't wear a kippah, by the way. Yeah, he said, why don't you wear a kippah? I'm an avowed heretic. I don't believe in this, but I like learning Torah. So is that person going to get a reward for the learning of the Torah? Yes. Will that, but if they reject, deny the existence of God, you know, based on our tradition, that person, not this person, I'm not judging this particular person, but according to our tradition, our, a person who is a true heretic, whatever exactly that means, that person stays in Gehenna for generations, and yet they do good deeds. How do, they get, how do you balance that? Where and when do they get re- reward to those good deeds if they're spending all this time, until the end of time, you know, in Gehenna? When, when do they get rewarded for their good deeds, right? So he's flipping the question. He's saying, "Wait, there are other people. We also have to understand when do they get rewarded." Okay. Um, and he asks further. Um, he says, and, and also, let's say someone rejects um, the world to come, or, you know, uh, the resurrection of the dead, and we're told that that person stays in Gehenim for generations. Okay. Now you have a murderer or an adulterer, someone who serves idols, right? Three cardinal sins. Let's say someone does all those things. We're also told that person stays in Gehenim, in hell, for generations. Is there no difference between them? Is someone going to tell me that a murderer is going to get just as much uh, hell time, so to speak, as someone who rejects the resurrection of the dead? Wouldn't we say a murderer, in some respects, is is worse? I would imagine, right? So what's going on? It seems like what he's pushing at is that our understanding of heaven and hell are a little simplistic. And we need to understand things a little bit better. So let's go to the next paragraph. Okay, It says like this: mitzvos tovim. Next paragraph. Rather, one who does mitzvos um, uh, and good deeds, harbe, and they perform and they commit many sins. achas chamura, or a very harsh sin or a terrible sin. She'roei lios aved that because of it, they should be destroyed, meaning their, their soul should be destroyed. They need on kirasha gamor, and they should be judged like a, like a completely evil person, meaning someone could commit sins, which are make them, even if it's one sin, let's say it's a person who is a murderer. They do everything else right, but they're a murderer. What would you call that person? They do all 613 mitzvot, except for one. They kill people. I'm sorry to use such an extreme example, but the point is we say that's a rasha, right? So, so what happens? But they do all these mitzvot, Where's the justice? So what happens to such a person? So Mishalim Loha Kadash skip the verse. God repays that person, S'char the reward of those mitzvos, but Olam Hazah in this world. Very simply, right? Basically says that yes, there is going to be justice, but there are two places where justice can be found. We touched upon this last week, right? He says, a person who is a Rasha Gamor, again a, a murderer, someone who murders, but also does mitzvos. What happens? How do you deal with that? How do they get reward? They are deserving of reward. The answer is, they get reward in this world while they still live physically. And when they, therefore, when they come to heaven and they say, hey, I did so," God says, I know, I paid you back already. You got your reward while you were still here in this world. Now, you're just getting punishment, right? So again, he was asking the question, what happens to the Russia to the terrible person who never goes into Gan Eden? Where do they get the reward? The answer is, they get the reward in this world. Okay? Yes. Correct. 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 Right. Just exactly. Thank you. Right. So when we see what we consider injustice in this world, you know, in Jewish law, the Maharal makes this point. The Maharal points out in Jewish law, you know what it takes to cause someone to be, uh, you know, we, in, in traditional Jewish law, capital punishment exists. In ancient Israel, capital punishment exists. You kill, you know, you kill someone, you get killed, right? And for a whole host of other sins. You know how hard it is to actually get to a point where the courts actually will kill someone? The Gemara in Mako says, you know, uh, you know, says, you know, you have two witnesses who follow someone into a cave, right? And they, 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 the two people are running into a cave. One person's holding a knife. The person runs in front of him and then they walk out. One person walks out with a bloody knife. The other person is dead lying on the floor court won't accept that as, as testimony. That wouldn't be enough, right? And the court has, basically, the Talmud the says that the courts will find every justification possible to say that the murderer should not get executed by the courts. And the martyr will ask, what's going on over here? Where's justice? Is not that the purpose of the courts? And the answer is no. The purpose of the court is to create a safe society. And they have ways of extrajudicial ways of ensuring that someone who's dangerous is, is put away. But in terms of justice, that's for God. So to Dina's point before, yeah, you see someone who gets off the hook. They did terrible things. Say, where's the justice? Of course, our job is to, to, to make sure that they, their society is safe. But justice, justice is in the hands of God. Only God could judge who is really, you know, to what extent are they guilty? And we believe that that's going to take place in the next world fully. That's, that's the idea. And, and and if good things happen, then we say, okay, that's fine. That's because they do, every, no one's free of mitzvot. Everyone does good deeds. But the ultimate reward or punishment is going to take place. And that's, that's yes, that's, that's exactly the idea, okay? So so too, so too, I'll read this next part and we'll skip to the next paragraph. part, part, part in, in the bold in, in Hebrew, in English. So too, this righteous one who is equal and a Kodesh Baruch who in his great compassion tilts towards kindness and makes him into one who's completely righteous and does not go down to Gehenim. It's the same principle. Rather, in this world, he is punished for the transgressions that he committed and his early sins and is saved from the judgment of Gehenim. So what he's telling us is like this. Until we're asking, wait a second, God tilts the scale. How is that fair? He says, doesn't? It's not what it means. What it means is that someone who is really equal, equal, what 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 happens is that God rewards the person, uh, um, God punishes the person. Excuse me for their sins in this world. And, and he's gonna explain this fully, okay, in today's class. Uh, let, let's let's jump to the next page. Let's turn to the next page. We'll skip the two the, the, the paragraph because uh, it's just gonna bog us down. But the, the main point I have in bold over here, okay? We'll read it in Hebrew. You see where it gets bold? I'm gonna read the part in Hebrew, you could follow in English if you'd like. Ella, rather, Kivan Sheroh Hakadash When God sees, shumizdake baolam haneshamos, that a person will ultimately should merit the world of souls. Now, they should ultimately merit the world of souls. But they also need to pay to, to get punished for their sins. So what happens? Maktimlo. God preempts things. They gove mi menu miut avirus ba'olam azeh When God sees that someone is equal, and on the one hand they should really be spending time straight in Gan Eden. at the same time they need to be punished for their sins. So what does God do? Before they die, God punishes them in this world. Ulefi hamida hazu. According to this rule, hayarubos tchuyos barasha shana. If someone is mostly, mostly has merits on Rosh Hashanah, the Niggzer, I love Misa. Okay, now we're going to put a lot of the last few classes together. We said every Rosh Hashanah person is judged for what? Whether they're going to live or die. Whether they will be poor or not. Whether they will be comfortable, healthy or, 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 or ill. Right? All those things. And let's say a person, God judged this person is going to die this year. Okay, that happens. Every year, Rosh Hashanah, God chooses certain people are going to die. But God also sees that really they're overall an amazing person but they still have some sins that need to be cleansed. So what does God do? So So God extends the judgment of this person dying. So God ensures that they receive in their last year of life, God makes sure to balance the checkbook, so to speak, to make sure that they get the punishment they need or the reward they need. So whether that means a person gets a longer life or other ways uh, uh, of receiving uh, things in this world, okay? So that the payments will be fulfilled. And ultimately, they'll be able to have the real reward or punishment in the world of souls. So what is he saying over here? What he's saying is as follows. You know, the last year of life, t- often, a person is, um, let's say a person, it, it, you know, passes away. So sometimes people pass away suddenly. Oftentimes, a person passes away in the midst of lots of pain, lots of illness, right? People more typically pass away in the context of illness, of being sick. And that last year of a person's life could be incredibly difficult to witness. Most well, certainly, it's a person we love. And, uh, you know, and they go through all this pain, Right. And at the same time, what he's telling us over here is perhaps a different way of framing it. What he's telling us is as follows. On Rosh Hashanah, God chooses, decides who is going to live and who's going to die. So person X, let's say God says he's going to die. And God says, okay, this person is going to die, but if they would die today, they still have many sins that they have to be cleansed from. And therefore what would happen is that they're going to go to Gehenna when they die, which we said, where would we rather suffer? In this world or in Gehenna? Gehenna is much worse. Everything in the world to come is much more intense, right? So a person, God says, this person is going to die this year, okay? Sometime this year. But if I were to take that person's soul back to me today, they would suffer greatly in Gehenna. So you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to make that person suffer, be in pain in this world, right? And therefore, sometimes we look at the last year, months of our loved ones or someone in the last year, and there's so much pain and it, and it should hurt us. We're human. We, we shouldn't, uh, you know, theologize and say, oh, don't worry. But it, it should pain us on the one hand. And at the same time, intellectually, we could understand that perhaps what is happening over here is God is saying, I want this person to come to, get, to Gan Eden straight away without having to deal with that level of pain. So how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to do that? I'm going to ensure in this last year of their life, they're going to suffer a lot. And it's going to be painful to watch and painful to experience. But in doing so, what that paves the way for is that when they enter into Gan Eden, and they enter into Olam Shamot, the world of souls, when their soul departs their body, they'd already have been cleansed from so much of the pain of Gan, of, that they could have had in Gehenim, and therefore they could go straight to Gan Eden, right? It's a bit of a paradigm shift, but he's pointing out, interestingly, it's specifically in the last year of life that perhaps things get amped up, that that, that that intensity of a person suffering more in the last year of life is not just the natural way of life. That people before they die are ill oftentimes, and that leads to death. But rather on a, on a deeper level, what could be happening is God is paving the way for that person to have a much better time, a much more pleasant time in the world to come. Yes? Does this only apply to a or... No, so good, good, great point. So he's understanding this... It's not clear. The Ramban, this is, this is why I'm not even reading every line. But one of the things he says a couple of times is, according to this rule, meaning he's, basically what he does, he sees the, those Gemaras as principles, and which, which are uh, springboards to understand how everything else works. So he's saying, he's using the Bainani to, to, to present the question, but he's saying, according to this rule, this is going to be true for any person, right? So it's not limited to the person who is literally 50-50. How many people are literally 50-50. One. I don't know. How, how many people literally be 50? But he's saying there's a principle at play over here. When the Gemara said that God tilted towards kindness, it didn't mean that God perverts justice. It means that before the person dies, God makes sure that they'll answer Gan And that is true for many other people as well. People who aren't 50-50, right? So again, if we wanted to walk away, what's the walk-away principle that he is presenting to us? We've talked about the fact that when we pass away, there is a judgment in what we call Olam HaNeshamos. God chooses if we go to Gan Eden immediately, or we go to Gehenem forever, for many generations until the end of time, or we spend some time in Gehenim and then into Gan Eden. Now he's telling us there is another factor over here that is important to know, and that is something that specifically takes place in the last year of life. In the last year of life, when God, if God were to choose, decide, judge, for whatever reason, this is the year a person should die, God in his kindness will also want to ensure that a person typically will have less time in Gehenim and more time in Gan Eden. And so one of the methods of doing so is that in the last year of a person's life, in the year that it has now been chosen, decided, that a person will no longer live, will live, not live past this year, God may go ahead and punish and, and make that person suffer more in this world, in doing so that negates the need for a Gehenim, and therefore they have an easier time, more clear, an easier time to come into Gan Eden in a more pleasant way. So again, it's it's a reframe, hopefully somewhat of a comforting reframe for us we think about people who suffer so much in the last year of their life to recognize that yes, it was hard to see and it's impossible to bear, and at the same time to recognize that that could be coming from a place of, this is Klape Chesed, God is Tilting it, it's coming from a place of kindness, where God is ensuring that we suffer here, so that we do not suffer there. Yes. So if somebody doesn't have a rotten last year of life, should we infer he's going to have a tough time to in <laughs> I would be, I, I would be oh, uh, hesitant. <laughs> I'd be hesitant. Maybe the person is so so righteous that that's not going to happen. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, what? It, it's possibility. I, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be hesitant to infer anything, uh, anything of that nature, but. Certainly a possibility, right? So it's it's uh, you know suffering is a is a double edged sword. You know the Gemara talks about the the suffering are memarkin, and which is what this Gemara is saying. When we suffer, it actually helps us. At the same time, you know the sages, you know there's the Gemaras in Brachos where you know rabbis were visiting uh, some of the greatest sages, and they say, do you want us to pray to have you healed? You know because this is actually good for you. And they say, I don't want the I don't want the suffering, and I don't want the reward for the suffering. In other words, you know this is a balancing act because on the one hand we're human at the same time we, we're believers you know I'll ask you one, I want to come to your question in one second like for example and there's something the rabban writes elsewhere um, you know when a person passes away when a person passes away you know let's say it's someone who is so incredibly righteous we know we know you know the person inside out you know they're going straight to Eden, right so let me ask you a question from that person's perspective is, is passing away good or bad for them it's good mm-hmm hard to say, right? But it's good. Of course it's good. A person who is so righteous, what's in this broken world or to be, you know, enjoying the presence of God, right? Straight. We know, if you know for a fact, a person's going straight again. So what's better? Of course, for them not to be here, right? And at the same time, so a person could say, someone so say, I really believe in God, right? What I'm about to say is, is incorrect, but I'm, this would, one could walk away with the following thinking. I really believe in God. I believe in the afterlife. So when a person passes away, I'm going to have a l'chaim. I'm going to say, amazing. This is great. Now the person's able to be in, in, in Ganeiden. It's wonderful, right? You know what the, Gemara, the Rambam writes? A person who doesn't mourn. When they lose a loved one, he has some bad words for such a person. Terrible person. B- but why? Because if we believe they're going to a better place, why do we mourn? You know, so the Rambam writes, it's, we mourn because, you know, the, forget the, the Rambam's because we're human. We, we have different parts of ourselves. There's a part of us that cries. There's a part of us that mourns. a part of us that sees someone in pain and we must react. We must help to take away their pain, right? No one's suggesting walking away from this thing. Well, if people are suffering, it's good. So we should suffer more. Heaven forbid, we're obligated to, to help us to try to heal, right? So on the one hand, we need to feel compassion. On the one hand, we need to feel terrible. We need to feel bad, both for illness, for loss. And at the same time, there's a part of our mind that has to also know and believe that this also might be, there's some good that's taking place while this is happening, right? It's not one or the other. Being a human being means balancing. Being a sophisticated human being means balancing different ideas and being a believing Jew means balancing two ideas. We, believe, we live with a foot in this world and a foot in, in, in a different world, in a mystical spiritual world. And we have to learn how to balance those two things. So what he's describing right here is that there's something good about suffering. But I don't want you to walk away from here saying, and therefore we'll celebrate suffering and celebrate death. Heaven forbid. What that means is we balance the two. We feel We're human, we feel, we must feel, and at the same time, we also must know, we believe that there is something good, there is something positive. We have absolute faith that those who suffer here, that that cleanses them for the next world. And we believe that when we see injustice, there will, there is justice, there is a world beyond this world. And that explains many of the misgivings or, or challenges that we have uh, theologically by recognizing these two worlds and the fact that there is justice by bringing them together. You got a question?